Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. Uh, we're dedicated to answering your questions about media and virtual production. That means that uh, you are the producers of the show, so please uh, go to officehours.global and join us. That way you can join Mukana and send us questions. That way you are the producers of the show. We have a fine panel today. Usually we uh, spend our first hours answering your technical questions, and then we focus on uh, a particular topic or a guest. Saturdays is our education hour, so we're looking forward to that. So hang around for our second half. Uh, we're here. Uh, Dave, take us through that topic. Mitchell, what do we have for questions? First one in from Frozen Banwell in San Diego, California. Frozen, uh, Frozen sorry, uh, should Stability AI gather artist consent prior to placement large-scale artificial intelligence open network? There's a link to it. Go ahead, John. I think one question as far as attribution and artificial intelligence is um, at what point does influence become uh, actual sourcing? And what I mean by that is every artist looks at other artists and is impacted and influenced by them. AI just does it on a much, much larger scale. Uh, when I'm trying to paint, I don't think I get permission from any of the famous Renaissance artists that might influence me. And so I think it's a valid question as to whether or not it should be required for AI. I think the way that they are handling it is helpful because that does allow people to opt out if they would like. But I also don't mind having it be on the artists um, to take the initiative to do that. Yeah, I think um, some of the very sticky issues, uh, the very gray issues uh, that we have is a little, little more difficult uh, with with some of these issues, when we ha started having digital media, uh, and there was fair use uh, issues that had to be uh, talked about and, and deciphered. So I think it's healthy that we're talking about these discussions and thinking about them. Oftentimes, you have to go back to the principle of you know what is ownership as opposed to something that was very cut and dry before, where you had physical uh, physical means and not something we could de uh, replicate digitally. Uh, Dave, you have a thought? Yeah, interactive media, when it first started coming out and CD-ROMs and everything, the publishing industry was quite frightened of it. Uh, but once they got their head around the idea, they started asking for more power. And so this may have a secondary effect, that the artist suddenly has more power to have their stuff not included in any uh, building of artificial intelligence databases. Yeah, well said. So it's it's an interesting tract. I'm sure that these uh, these ideas are going to come up uh, more so in the future. It'd be interesting to see just how we decide to uh, to move on these these topics, protecting the rights of artists, but also um, uh, looking at just what actually is ownership. Uh, Mitchell, you have a thought? Yeah, that that's my my thought exactly. Is that if a AI, whatever that is, uh, is swiping intellectual property without permission, who do you go after? You know, if the AI is this amorphous uh, thing out in the ether, uh, you may not have a recourse on it. So, I mean, yeah, legally it would not be correct, but uh, who do you enforce it with? Yeah, the, that is a, a sticky situation as far as ownership. But uh, I'm sure we'll be having more discussions about this, and um, as we as we explore things, it may be interesting of how some digital means of enforcement may be useful or not. I guess we'll see. Uh, let's go to our next question. 
Deborah Woodfork in Washington, D.C., asked the question, received a notification to purchase the Opal C1 webcam. Does anyone have this or plan to purchase? I do not see anyone raise their hand, but um, I take a, took a look at it. It's a very interesting uh, looking uh, webcam. I believe I remember seeing it pop out before. Um, not knowing the s- specs, I didn't have time to look at the specs of the webcam. But um, what we're really looking for, I think, is something that has a little larger sensor. I think the new standard since we've had the Link 360 is a half inch sensor, sort of a low bar to having, uh, you know, something that we want to look at for a single camera. The nice thing about the Link, though, is it has that half inch sensor and it has a PTZ. So a lot of these cameras, they'll super sample at 4K and then you can have some PTZ functionality, but it's digital. It's not physical. So it means that you have to crop into the image. Um, really where these webcams tend to fall down is they have too wide of a, a field of view. And so it requires um, cutting into a 4K image that um, starts to show starts to show its uh, degradation over a while. So yeah, I'd probably look for something that has the, the half inch sensor and it had to be pretty reasonable if, if for $300 it looks like is the, uh, the price of the webcam. You're in Link360 territory there. So um, it would have to have a pretty astonishing image if it's competing with that half-inch sensor and the PTZ functionality, in my opinion. So let's go to our next question. Nigel Dessau comes in from Austin, Texas. I have ESET on my Mac, and I wonder, does anything except run? Do you run antivirus on your Macs? And if you do, which one? Dave. Well, I use a Mac and have used it for many, many decades now. Um, my favorite is uh, Clam AV. Clam AV is a background watch. Uh, it every time you plug a USB in or connect to a drive that's not familiar to it, it does a full scan of that. Uh, it also updates um, pretty much every half hour to check for its database of threats, and uh, it's an open source or non-commercial. Uh, product and it's actually served me very well. Uh, during the time I had to deal with a lot of corporations, I had to, I, not only did I have to protect information on my computer for other clients, but I had also to protect my computer from people who had chips and things they were giving me to uh, read from. And uh, I needed something that was going to see the problem before it got into my machine. So uh, Clam XAV is free and um, you can support it with a donation, but uh, I found that to be effective in my environment right from the beginning. And Dave, uh, since you have experience with it, does it have like a sandboxing feature uh, that you're able to um, to look at yeah, those things with? Yeah, call it quarantine, so it'll notify you that it's found something. It, it won't let the drive read or send anything into your machine or put any demons in there. Uh, and then it, it notifies you that there, an item is in quarantine, and until you deal with it, it won't be allowed to run. Interesting. Uh, John? I run Avast. I found it to be uh, v- very minimally intrusive, and, and I've had good luck with it over the years. Thanks, John. Uh, Mitchell? The general consensus is that a Mac is not a target, and... Um, for the most part, that's probably true until it isn't true. 
So you should have some kind of a game plan for security, especially in the world we live in right now. I've tried a bunch of them uh, at one time or another, and for one reason or another, I've gotten rid of them. Everything from McAfee to Kaspersky uh, to uh, Norton, which lately I run on my PC, and it uh, has been spamming me about things that they want to sell you. So um, it's uh, up to you to decide what one makes the most sense and has the lightest footprint. Yeah, um, got me thinking um, if perhaps your antivirus of choice doesn't have a sandbox. I wonder if uh, maybe just using one. There was one that um, I had used. Uh, it was pretty open source. It was sandboxy. And I was able to run multiple uh, versions of programs with it. But you could open up a controlled environment with that particular app. So uh, maybe if um, you don't run a Mac for this particular app or if your uh, particular antivirus doesn't support that, that might be an option to uh, to get some of those features. Let's go to our next question. Al Trivet from Carmichael, California, asking, I just saw the documentary Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. Curious if anyone else has seen it and their reactions currently showing on Netflix. Go ahead, Mitchell. I have not seen it. I'm looking forward to it. And thank you, Al, for bringing it up. Uh, so I'm going to put on my to-do list for things to do today. Um, in the meantime, we have our very own Courtney Gooden here uh, that generally uh, does all the historical cinematic uh, sound effects and things that we need to know. So join us uh, during regular office hours, and Courtney probably will be here, and he can always answer your questions about that. Meantime, watch it on Netflix. Yeah, I was just checking it out um, briefly, and... They had a bunch of, uh, looks like a collaboration of a bunch of different sound designers that work on this. Uh, it mentions the stars. One of them is Steven Spielberg. So really interesting. I've not got an opportunity to watch it. Let's go to our next question. From Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. How important is it to have camera positioned at eye level? Aside from a teleprompter, would it be better to be at eye level, off to the side, or above centered? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Well, the best part about eye level is that if you have, like, for instance, a talking head, if I'm, if uh, somebody like Josh calls upon me, I look right there. It's like home base. It's like position zero for anybody that's uh, that's that's moving around. So they don't have to look for the camera. They know it's going to be right there. I always call, I you have eye level what I call God mode and what I call peasant mode. God mode is when the camera points up at you, like somebody has to look up to you. And then of course, peasant mode being the opposite. Some people actually do this to kind of give that whole God mode, peasant mode, depending on the video that they're doing. Uh, so it can be actually be used in, in a cinematic uh, uh, use to uh, make people feel like, yeah, I have to look up to this person, I have to look down at this person and, uh, and go from there. So, but if you really want the eye level, like for instance, they would always say, if you are waiting tables, the best thing to do is if you had a low top table is to crouch down so you are eye level with the people. That way you're a little, uh, people think you're a little bit more honest, a little bit forthcoming and uh, ready to go. So those are some of the reasons why you would want to go eye level on your cameras. John. Jeffrey Powers made an excellent case for answer of the day there. Uh, I would also add, just be careful if it's below eye level, you can look up your nose and... 
I'm convinced that at eye level or slightly above is the most natural feeling in meetings. And so especially if you're in a meeting situation, you want to do that. Be careful if you have your camera off to the side, because when you're looking at your monitor over here, you can sometimes look shifty and untrustworthy. So just be aware of those sorts of things. And I would just review your own video and ask yourself, how do I look? Good, Mitchell. I am shifty. So uh, even if you're looking at me straight on for what it's worth, but uh, I agree with all that. I think it's uh, it's it's a great uh, uh, paradigm to use that just think of the person that's watching your video. That's really the perspective. Uh, and if you're like right now and I'm making eye contact with you, it means we're having a conversation. So that works there. And in a cinema, um, you use that to use exactly what was being said about the God mode and the peasant mode. Um, it just helps to add a little gravitas to the scene. Jeffrey. One more point to uh, what John said, and that is, uh, like, for instance, I back into 2016, I had Bell's palsy. So I have, uh, I have a hard time lifting up this eyelid. So if I have something eye level, it kind of looks like I'm looking down a little bit or I have my eyes closed. So if you're, if you're bringing, if you're positioning somebody to uh, to their talking head and they kind of have that look in their eyes kind of glazed over or looking down, you might want to bring it up a little bit so that at least their eyes go up a little bit so their eyelids go uh, open up and therefore it looks a little bit more natural. Yeah, and as far as, you know, looking straight, is it you also want to consider your posture. Uh, oftentimes, even when we do our, our checks here on... Um, uh, when we do our checks here in, in office hours, people often, they'll stretch into a frame. Um, but the problem with that is that they won't hold that frame later. So if you're not comfortable in the position that you're in, you, you'll eventually settle into the position that you are uh, comfortable with. The other thing is that having a, a lower camera does sometimes um, result in some shadows. Uh, sometimes it's not as flattering for under the chin as well. So people often tend to raise their cameras, maybe even a little bit above eye level, just to uh, to try to avoid those things. Uh, Mitchell, you think of something else? Yeah, I I think you brought up a good point there about uh, posture and uh, and in some cases lighting contributes to it. For example, if I'm making eye contact and I start going like this, now I got a light in my eye right here. That could be an issue too. So all of this stuff uh, sort of contributes to making it work better and not so much. Yeah, and it is nice. Um, many of us use teleprompters, not just so that we're able to read text on the screen, but we have um, what's been dubbed the Interatron uh, usage of a of teleprompter. And that's just so that we can naturally look straight at individuals just as we were having a conversation. And as was mentioned before by the panelists, you know, that virtual appearance and posture is something that um, translates from you know in-person appearance to the digital. So there is there is something to be said about uh, the posture that you have and the camera angle, and that's the reason why whenever um, cinematographers are picking angles, they're trying to say something about the angle uh, that they're picking. So be careful what you what you're communicating about the posture that you pick with your camera and your your positioning. Let's go to our next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. After an episode of discussing chat GBT and an AI on office hours, has anyone had any results trying it out and testing its effectiveness with dialogues? Have you found alternative AI chat systems? John, have you got a chance to try it out? 
Yes, I've used ChatGPT quite a bit, including testing some of its conversational functionality. Uh, working at a call center, uh, call centers oftentimes use different types of chatbots, so I'm pretty familiar with the industry. And where the current industry mostly falls flat in chatbots is that ability to have natural language responses from the machine. And it becomes an uncanny valley. So customers really, really hate chatbots that try to sound human and are not. They would much prefer a very simple basic, something that they can navigate and get through. Um, I think that the big difference with ChatGPT is it does add that conversational element and that ability to re retain the context of the conversation that most other chatbots cannot. Yeah, I've, um, I have had a chance to try it out. Uh, you'll probably recall that Friday, we had a full second hour on ChatGPT. So if you've not got a chance to check it out, Go ahead and check it out. Um, we actually, the actual description was ChatGPT is a chatbot model developed by OpenAI that uses deep learning algorithms to generate human-like responses in a conversational manner. It is based on GPT-3, uh, on the GPT-3 model, and is still in development. That description was written by ChatGPT. Go ahead, John. OpenAI is now almost seven years old. DeepMind is older. They're like almost 12 years old now. These have been around for a long time. Uh, ChatGPT3 is, is a significant boost up because of the instance points is 125 billion. ChatGPT4, which is supposed to come out next year, is supposed to be even better. But now you can integrate ChatGPT into your own application. And so I suspect we'll see all kinds of great stuff coming. Yeah, there's a very interesting um, financial model to that too. Something that uh, it intrigued me as far as the way that they're they're talking about monetizing these things. Maybe instead of uh, all of our, you know, GPUs going to uh, Bitcoin, maybe it'll maybe it'll start generating some AI for us, uh, John. Yeah, and it's important to remember that any chatbot is referencing a source of information, and that's one of the huge advantages of these large AI data sets. And it's going to be difficult to be able to take that language model and put it into, have it analyze an internal resource library that's smaller. So if you have like a company uh, tip sheet, help sheet site, uh, it can remember the language aspects if you were to embed ChatGPT, but it's going to have to learn the intents and how to handle intents from existing conversational infrastructure, whether it's through like recorded phone calls or chat conversations specific to that company. So if you're thinking of like a company's chatbot, um, that will be something that has to happen. Modern, most modern systems can start um, using artificial intelligence to uh, surface customer intents that it, so it'll say, oh, I here's 10 phrases I don't recognize. Can you teach me how to manage these? Uh, but they do, they do have to be maintained and managed by humans. Yeah, I kind of wonder if at some point someone will come out with a model like Wikipedia, where you can put in what officehours.global in if, if your chat GPT doesn't, uh, or your, your AI bot doesn't know it. Uh, Jeffrey. So the best part about this is that any type of AI can be de delivered from here. So right now we've got it it's on a big supercomputer uh, uh, and everybody's trying to access this, but uh, down the road, like 
only a couple of years, you could probably have your own box sitting in your own home with uh, your more uh, more dedicated uh, AI. You know, you could be feeding in your own conversations. Like, for instance, I could take every single time I talked at office hours and put it into this computer. And therefore, when I needed to do something that, you know, I'm not able to do, I can call up the AI to have it uh, spit out something text-based or actually video or audio-based as well. So that's the really cool thing about it. There was a story about a guy who used Zapier and uh, and chat uh, uh, GPT because he has uh, dyslexia. And so he's actually made, he, he scored a $275,000 contract by uh, bringing these two things together. So there's a lot of great things that we can be doing with this. And, and I've been having a lot of fun with it last uh, last week, we sh- I showed you a podcast at adobe.com, and I actually used Jet Chat GPT to create the uh, script that I used to create the podcast with, which was pretty cool. Interesting. Uh, Mitchell? I'm waiting for dueling chat uh, AIs uh, talking to each other and comparing notes, because remember... The only uh, the only thing about all this information we're getting from these chat uh, GPT devices is stuff that we put into it. So some of that information may not be right, and it's just referencing that information. So how do we know it's not the ultimate authority on that answer? A AI debate, uh, if you will, instead of the uh, the physical robots fighting in the arena, now we've got them hashing it out in debate class. You knocked my block off, <laughs> John. I posted this on Facebook. It's funny you say this, Mitch. This week, you're going to see AI Olympics. They're going to play chess and checkers, and you're going to see all kinds of competitions like this coming soon. Nice. We're going to have to. We're going to need new games, people. We need new games. The AI is is in our games. Uh, let's go to our next question from Douglas Carmichael, the popular YouTube music channel, the VR Sessions. Uh, mentions their videos being shot in 3D with 360-degree spherical cameras. How is working at 360 degrees different than using a conventional camera? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, it's there is a lot of advantage that you could have with a 360 degree camera, whether you use it in 360 or you use it in HD mode. Uh, I've been using a 360 camera for the last few years, in, and uh, there, a lot of times uh, when I need something that's going to capture a whole area, um, I can I can use it. In fact, let me let me show you this really quick. I called up. I, I just bought about three weeks ago. I got the uh, Insta three sixty uh, RS one inch sensor, and of course, I used it. I went out to a local jam session and did a little bit of playing with that. As you can see, I can set this up so I can see this in three sixty mode. I can zoom in and have a HD mode of of me playing the piano. I can also bring it into a little tiny world and and take a picture when we went to Malta a few weeks ago, I, I created a video where it started out like this and then little, did a little graphics flip back and forth and uh, came back here. So I'm going to be using it for CES too. So last year I used, uh, I used the uh, um, DJI uh, Pocket and it was great, but when I had to 
go down to uh, show the product, I had to run the joystick and I always ran into problems going back and forth on that. With this now, I can take this camera and I can uh, I can use it and, uh, and then bring it into post-production. Uh, if somebody's showing something down here, all I have to do is move the camera down here or just uh, show it as a 360 up on YouTube. And then the person can can make their adjustments to see me, to see them, or anything else. And then, of course, there is the one other thing, and that is, this is the webcam mode for that. Um, so you can see, you can see that. It, unfortunately, you can't do it in HD mode. This is how they have it right now. Hopefully, in the future, they're going to fix that. But this is another great way to capture a meeting or or anything like that. Uh, in a Zoom room. So lots of great advantages with that. And it's like having a PTZ camera that can capture every single piece of information so you can use it however you choose to. And I'm not quite getting the uh, the webcam mode that you showed for us there, uh, Jeffrey. Um, what, what is the export for that? Is that the intended uh, Richter linear um, export for that? Yeah, uh, so basically there's only one export for it from uh, Insta360 right now. Uh, so this is a dual, so you're seeing the backside. There, every, in, uh, every 360 camera has two sensors on it. You have the front sensor and the back sensor, if it's doing the full spherical 360. Uh, so the we have on the bottom uh, where my finger is right now, that is the front sensor. And then of course, this is the back sensor over here. So it's capturing that. And they just chose to uh, display this as a 1080p video with, uh, with the front and back instead of being able to choose, I just want the front camera or the back. Interesting. Uh, Dave? Well, actually, I, I have further questions to Jeffrey as the expert here on that. 360 stuff because I've never shot 360. Uh, I've done some, uh, you know, 360 panoramas in the old days with uh, cameras that rotated around a, a spot. And I played with QuickTime VR for a little while to get, you know, fisheye images to, to travel around with. But uh, two things occurred to me when I was thinking 360, does it, does it remove the person holding the camera? I uh, believe that is a native feature provided that you have the thin enough pole to it. But uh, go ahead, uh, John. Then it Jeffrey. removes it removes the pole. I don't believe it removes the person. Je Jeffrey would know. We're, we're probably going to use the same camera that Jeffrey's using right now inside of the rocket for 3D. And then we hope to, to make it anamorphic back into a player to play it back in real time for streaming. That's our goal. And so this, we're playing a lot with, with these 360 cameras right now. You make a good point, uh, John, as far as what your delivery uh, needs to be. I know some people will turn off one of the, one of the lenses and they'll just have a 180 uh, view for some, for some things. One of the advantages of the 360 camera is that it shows everything. And the disadvantage is it shows everything. <laughs> so there's no, uh, there's no fourth wall, as it will. Um, if you have the 180 degree lens, at least there's some place for, you know, lighting and, you know, you really are capturing an entire experience if that is the, the point at which you're depending on what you want to deliver. But um, a few of our other panelists have jumped in. So, uh, Jeffrey, uh, 
So yeah, uh, with a, what's what's called an invisible stick, you'll be able to not have the uh, the shot with that in there. Again, keep in mind that once again, you have it's two flat sensors. You have a flat sensor here, and you have a flat sensor here. Notice how thick this uh, the RS is. That means that anything that's in between here is technically not seen. So then they do what's called stitching, trying to get the best idea of what's happening between here and here in the in the lens so uh and this does a pretty decent job so we'll go back to the uh we'll go back to this shot right here um you can see this is my hand on this uh rs uh rs R, insta 360 rs and you notice my hand is, is cut off there that's that's the uh blind spot when it comes to the camera but as, if we go up the seam notice how it doesn't you don't see in the scene or the seam that uh, there's a issue there but every now and then you will because you know it's trying to do its best to auto correct for that older cameras yeah there's going to be more of a seam on there um but uh yeah and th that's the best part about this thing is i'm going to be putting i'm going to be using this at ces for my interviews and I'm going to have a wireless microphone that's going to be sitting right here, and you will not see it in any of the shots, which is going to be great. Mark? So with the Thetis 360, if what we do is we just put it on a monopole and then kind of have set up wheels for it, and you can just roll it through and take your shots and then use your iPhone to remotely control it so that you're not sitting in the picture. Uh, back to the original question with Douglas, I think one of the... Th major challenges is, as was brought up by Josh, there is no back wall. So if you're going to take a 360 show, you have to now be concerned about lighting, not only what's in front of the camera, but what's surrounding the camera. So your lighting issues go way up. The challenges with all that, the shadowing, the uh, it just brings a whole new level of production to the table. It certainly shows everything. Dave? Well, that was my second question to Jeffrey was about lighting. Um, cameras with auto exposure, of course, respond to specular highlights and reflections in windows or picture frames and that sort of thing. And I wondered, are the sensors sort of selective as to where they expose or does, there, does it average the exposure across the whole field? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, just like any other camera, it, it does it does its best, best to uh, figure out what it's what it's uh the room it's in how it's working of course you can always go in some uh, like for instance with the rs i can go in and change the settings to what i want it to be but just think of it like having two one or well it depends on if you have a full spherical or a half spherical but uh, one sensor versus two sensors just think of it like having a dslr camera uh, that you can adjust yeah, and that is something to where you may have a compromise, whereas you may have a bright side and a light side. Um, splitting the difference with that uh, comes into play. The nice thing about the camera that uh, Jeffrey has is that larger sensor has a greater dynamic range. So that is something that um, 360 cameras in the past have tried to get around by doing some processing and some extra frame capturing and averaging. Um, there's been some limited success with photo modes and video, video modes in trying to make up for the difference in what can be a much more dynamic range, shooting a much more dynamic shot. Mark? 
So there, there are some other things to consider. File size is much larger, and the sensors, because they are smaller. Now, I haven't played with the one Jeffrey has, but the ones that we have are good up to about 10 or 12 feet for detail. So when we're using them to survey buildings, you, you've got to make a lot more passes to get uh, a deeper room into a point where you have enough detail that you can actually go back and use it. And Mark, what are you using uh, your 360s we have, for? We have some of the Rico Thetas. Nice. And you uh, you said you use a dolly setup and you kind of roll it through for a yeah. for kind of so, a tour setup? So if we want to do it as a movie, we'll roll through. But then you obviously you're whoever the top of someone's head's in there pushing that dolly through there. Uh, otherwise, we will just position it, walk away from it behind a column or something and take a picture. I'm just picturing, uh, you know, the, the the camera person there wearing an all green suit, pushing the theta through the <laughs> through the image. Uh, Jeffrey, yeah, and the and the best part is uh, you can if you put it in post production, you get two or three of these cameras. When you're talking about going on stage with a band, you could have them. Uh, the basically you have a shot of everything. So if you see a crowd member that's just completely going bonkers and you want to bring that in there, you just have to uh, make the adjustment and uh, bring it in. Of course, once again, that would be in the HD mode side of things. But uh, and of course with the lighting, yeah, the the one inch sensor is. I'm really hoping that it's going to show everything that I'm going to be doing at CES without having to have a light. I will have the DJI in hand just in case because, you know, they're super small now. It's, it's just crazy what I can uh, record without having big gear at CES. Yeah, well, that was one of the applications that I've used them for before. Uh, what I would do is I would take a little tripod stand and raise the uh, 360 camera up from the floor in a volleyball court right up to right just underneath the net and um, my in intention was you could take the video export and then have it something where you could put on a, a pair of 3d goggles and you know watch who you wanted to watch but in post you never missed a shot you know especially the ones that were right up close now um, the Achilles heel with a lot of these cameras is they like the things that are proximal to the lens. Um, just like any digital cropping, uh, there's only so much resolution to go around. So the things that are really close to it, it really gives you an intimate uh, experience with it. Now, of course, if the, the detail falls away into the distance, you don't notice it as much. But if you wanted to go to a rectilinear um, export where you're actually framing the shot around using the 3D image, um, you know that zoom, uh, depending on the sensor size of that camera and the resolution depends on really how much you can move in before it starts to get really soft. Uh, John. So Mark reminded me of a, of an interesting um, company or application for the 360 cameras. And Mark, you might know about this. The guys at Open Space, have you seen that? They're using this on construction sites. My friend's building a casino, designing a casino in Chicago. And the construction guys are walking through with these 360-degree cameras on their helmets, and they're documenting the process in that regard. It's uh, called openspace.ai. Mark. So, yes, if you go to Boston Dynamics' website, they have Spot the Dog, and they equipped it with all kinds of ways to record the progress in construction sites 
And so I know the construction companies we work with will send them through buildings at night with a predetermined route, and then they can look and see at their schedule the next day where they are in terms of where where where's this trade, where's that trade, are we on schedule, are we you know behind schedule, and where can it be made up? They also can use it for safety because they can go through and see you know what what might be a trip hazard and other issues that could come up on a job site. And spot bite the people that are being slow. No, but I did hear a story where people were in front of Spot going down a staircase and Spot lost its balance. So now in the safety manual, it is Spot walks down the staircase first. So they changed his name to Splat. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I have a question for, I don't know if anyone knows. Now, a lot of the scenarios that we've been talking about with the 360 cameras were post-processing. You know, we were able to either take the file and put it into... Um, put it into something where people can look at later in, you know, an already recorded scenario. I have, I don't know too many platforms and transports that allow you to be like a virtual fly on the wall or, you know, moving, getting into a live event. I don't know if that's something that might be a little bandwidth limiting. I know YouTube has some features for 360 video. I'm not so sure about the live aspect of this, but perhaps that platform doesn't exist now. Be kind of interesting. Typically, in a virtual event, one of the things that you miss is that you can't do this. You know, whenever you're watching, you have to watch what the screen watches. So having the ability to be, you know, in a place at the same time and be able to look wherever you want um, would be a pretty interesting experience, particularly for something that was going on, you know, in the moment. Um, Jeffrey, you have any idea about that? Yeah, you, you, uh, YouTube and Facebook both have live 360 options. So all you have to do is, and I'm not sure if you have to sign up for them or if the, they're just something that you, that you can add to it. Uh, I haven't done it in a very long time, but uh, yeah, if, it's it's something. If you wanted to take your 360 camera and go live at a conference, and and uh, you couldn't have anybody move it around and that's what i was really hoping with this zoom uh with zoom is if i could have turned this 360 camera into a zoom room camera and then have somebody control it and actually work it like a ptz that would have been awesome but uh you still have to have somebody that moves it around and of course uh on in the player uh for there yeah it's really interesting i mean we've had a bit, bit of a session with it. Our producers have given us a little bit of time for that, but um, sounds like it would be an interesting second hour. Um, maybe um, tell us in the chat what you what you want to see. Do you want to see a uh, manufacturer? You know, someone that is experienced in making three hundred and sixty videos, three hundred and sixty live, three hundred and sixty recorded, three hundred and sixty post. What uh, work processes? No, well, let us know what you want to see. Let's go to our next question. Next up from Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada. What type of mount would work for an eye webcam at eye level? Anything better than the standard tripod? Mitchell. Well, I have uh, a what's called a slick creation pull. I'm not sure I can give you a good shot of it, but I'll I'll let you try to see it. It goes right up the center uh, pole right here. There's my microphone connected to it. There's my monitor. There's my teleprompter. And, of course, there's the rest of the camera, and it can't really get it from up here very well. But, uh, basically, it's made by Slick, and uh, it's the Creation Tripod. It's just a very, very sturdy t- 
tabletop clamp mounted and that can take a little bit of pounding and not uh, wiggle the camera in the process. Thank you, Mitchell. John? I also used to have uh, some Amazon Basics tiny little tripod mount that attaches to your desk. I'll put a link in the chat. Another one to look at is called PlexiCam, and it's a clear plastic mount that you put over the top of your screen so you can actually see through it and continue to monitor your screen. I'll put a link in there as well. Fantastic. I was trying to find if I can pull it up what I use, but I buy it from the place that you you don't need it right away. But there's these little mounts that are designed to go on top of uh, tripods. And the way they work is they have sort of a, um, you know, almost uh, you can telescope them out and put them in any ergonomic position. What you can do is you can put a spud uh, adapter on these instead of putting them on the tripod and put a um, uh, super clamp on those. So what that enables you to do is to clamp it to your desk and then you can project it out any direction that you want. You can project it all the way out, put a little ball head with a quick release plate on there. And they're really handy. Um, if you have, I use them a lot of times with uh, carts. Uh, if you move in carts, you can clamp them to the carts and have a couple of rigs, uh, one on either side. You can get an A and B set up. And the camera that I'm using right now has that on it. So I can position it anywhere in space. What that does is clamp to the desk. Um, tripods are great for mounting a shot uh, framing something that, that uh, you're just trying to figure out where to put the camera. Once you know where you want your camera at, tripods are not great because <laughs> they have a huge footprint for them to be stable. So having something that has a base and has a lot of articulation on it takes that footprint away. Uh, so that's helpful. Um, other people use like monopoles. I have another one that's uh, holding a uh, webcam of mine that I can move around and it only has the footprint of a single pole going from from ceiling to floor and I can move real quickly. But yeah, tripods are, they're not the best. Uh, they're like, uh, you know, they're like scaffolding, you know, they're there when you want to set things up. But once you figure out, you know, when you put down roots, you definitely want to figure out something a little more permanent. Let's go to our next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking the Zoom mail and calendar clients beta will let any Zoom user free or paid access their existing email accounts from popular third party email services directly into the Zoom desktop app. Will you use this and the pros and cons? Go ahead, Dave. I'm not sure I'll use this. I'm pretty happy with my email aggregator, which has all my accounts in one place. Um, I guess I would also wonder if, if Zoom is hosting any of this or it's just another input feature, sort of an API plugin. So if it is, uh, as they say, a place where you could be checking your email while in Zoom. Uh, just another distraction for me. <laughs> uh, go ahead, John. Zoom's trying to keep keep pace with, with Microsoft Teams. And so they're trying to provide all these different applications in order to, to not be bypassed by Teams. So it's going to be an interesting battle. I think where these applications would have some value to me is if instead of it just being a second window that you can open up in Zoom, if it actually had some integration, you know, something that you could bring into Zoom. Um, John mentioned that um, they're trying to keep pace with uh, a service Teams that's starting out as a, collabor a collaboration platform and then added the video conferencing bolted on. Here you have Zoom that's coming from the opposite direction. They started out as a video conferencing, and now they're trying to bolt on uh, the collaboration details. 
I would think I've not used that one, Paul, but I would think that something that would be have value to me is if taking the emails or attachments is something that you could very easily share or, you know, just some type of collaboration or maybe put it directly into chat as far as links and be able to share things in your email. That would be uh, of use to me. But I agree with Dave. If it's just a, a second screen, then, um, yeah, not, not a whole lot of usefulness. But uh, be interested to check that out. Dave? Well, maybe if it integrated Discord into the uh, frame, then uh, maybe that would be interesting. I could monitor my Discord while being online. There you go. All right. So, excellent. Uh, maybe uh, maybe it'll be better than the than Electron app. Let's go to our next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. In an article about George Thorogood's tour, they say the front-of-house engineer has been with him for nearly 25 years in the current gig economy era, how do you keep a crew together that long? Mitchell, how do you keep I us can, together? I can speak about George because he's a fellow Delaware resident and a friend. And uh, he's been around here a long time. I used to watch him uh, play outside of the Stone Balloon, which was a popular uh, club here in town. And uh, he set up a uh, studio in St. George's, Delaware. And he had a, a you know, basically a posse of friends that... Uh, that he kept around him and he kept him close and probably wants to stay with him. So a small time guy that makes it big time tends to hold on to the people that got them there. Dave. I've only had a couple of crews that lasted a long time. And uh, one of the things I did was of course what they call team building, but you do things outside of the work together. And when you're on the road or part of a tour, everybody's together. They're on the bus together. They're in the hotel together. So you get to know people really well, and then if you show interest in their lives and share a lot of their experiences, then they stick with you, and they'll they'll take the the good with the bad. Uh, one uh, crew I had, uh, two of the guys in my crew were moving, and I lent them my car and helped them move. And it was just a Saturday with the guys, but it helped later when we had to have you know conflict resolution with us. Uh, they could trust me. That's a good point, uh, Dave. I, I think um, a lot of people tend to have uh, transactional relationships. Uh, you know, if you can see the benefit, you know, I, I do this for you, you do that for me. And that's been traditional. Um, but, you know, there's a certain um, attention that should be applied to goodwill in, in certain areas. And maybe if you can't quite see the payoff, it might be f a future or further down the road. It's more likely that uh, people will will stick around if you're looking more at the future as as opposed to the near term. It's not, it's not easy, especially when we, you have to balance budgets and you know um, really. But even uh, the even the future offer is a transactional consideration. Uh, it's possibly getting a, a benefit uh, that you seed for in the future. Uh, but I'm with you on it not being transactional that it that it should be outside that domain. And that if people feel more like you hear them and they hear you, uh, I've had some very lasting post-colleague res relationships uh, with people I had to work with. And then later uh, found that, you know, my life was interesting to them and their life was interesting to me. And we, we carried on. Yeah, there was always an expression uh, that my workmates always used to have. It said, we're, we're not here to make friends. <laughs> you know? And it sort of had a, uh, you know, we're here for business. I think with uh with what's happened in the modern era 
we've been decentralized. And so you can pretty much work with who you who you want to work with. You can partner with people that aren't necessarily tied to your geographic area. So maybe if you form those relationships with people that do have common interests, like Dave said, um, you know, that's something that could last a little longer than something of, you know, just filling out a, uh, a local, you know, help wanted uh, for the local, whoever comes up, you know, finding the best person until you run out of time to, to search for them and, you know, work it from that point of view. But um, anyway, well, I, I had a colleague that I used to walk to work with. I used to take the bus to a certain place and then walk the rest of the way. And he would always meet me at the bus stop and we would have 20 minutes to just talk about life while we both went into the office. And uh, that turned out to be really great. And another fellow who I used to wait at my old local bus stop with, eventually I found out he's a lawyer, he works in the government, he does. And, and he and I have stayed friends ever since because we, we met each other in a neutral environment. Uh, I think it, it, the question's gone right now, but I think in terms of uh, um, just the transactional nature of almost everything in our lives, uh, I think it's good to cultivate community, and certainly OH is an example of a new kind of community. I look at the uh, selfies that are being shared uh, in Discord on our channels, and I see people really happy to finally meet the person behind the image, and also to realize just you know, it isn't just tech they share. It's other things in life, and and the space group I think found there was a whole experience the the bunch of them had, which was unique to what John was doing. But at the same time, they've carried that with them ever since. So if they ever see each other in the same city, they're going to get together. Yeah, I was thinking about what the equivalent uh, Dave would be of walking to work with your friend, and maybe. What I've had the experience with in digital events is having the collaboration Zoom room or video conferencing room open a little bit earlier and see who shows up, you know, early for work and gets to to chat about things. It might be a little more productive too. If you I to used to recommend that stuff. actually when training people to do video conferencing. I said, hey, show up half an hour early, have your lunch, and share that lunch with the other person. Or if you're just doing a coffee break, sit and read the paper with them and talk about what's happening. And even here in, in this environment, we have a little banter before the show starts and find out what's going on with each other. There you go. All right. So frame it differently uh, than, than it has traditionally been. All right. Let's go to our next question. And it's from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. I'm trying to connect my Samsung Go mic to a magic arm. It has a quarter-inch ball mount. Is there a quarter-inch ball mount to a quarter-inch uh, 20 out there somewhere? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, this is one uh, I use a lot. This is from Neewer. Uh, and that, yeah, that is how you pronounce it, Neewer. Uh, and basically what this is, is it's a great little uh, uh, adapter that you can use. And it's so interchangeable. Uh, you can turn it. Uh, all you have to do is just basically t take out the uh, Allen screws and then uh, move it around. You can uh, put it on different types of adapters. You can use it in different ways on, on shoe mounts. They have all of them right there the, for the capacity uh, that they can use. But the big thing is if that doesn't work for you, there's always another type of adapter that you can get uh, bags of them uh, from uh, threaded, threaded screws to the nuts to a uh, fill nut that will uh, allow you to uh, put in whatever you need. Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good, good idea. I actually happen to have the go mic here. Um, we saw it whenever uh, Guy Cochran came in on John Ilson's uh, secondary studio, and um, it does have this little clip on it 
that's supposed to, the idea is that it's supposed to be, you know, something you clip to a stand, you know, and adjust onto a, the back of a, a laptop or such. Um, if you don't have any connectors, you could put something on it that extends out that you clip on this, this onto it. Not the, probably the most secure, if it was more flat, it would probably hold a little bit better to it. But that's, I think that's mostly the appeal to it. I have seen um, a modification, I believe it was in our uh, after hours where we, there was a, um, a ball that you could stick right on the end of that and adapt it to it. But I uh, might want to check that out. Uh, let's go to our next question. And it's from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, is there an on-air sign like Mitchell's that is low cost and will connect to a stream deck? Mitchell, does it have a brother? Um, it could. There's lots of them out there. Uh, this one happens to be uh, a neon light. Uh, it is full-on neon with a neon transformer in it. And it's $50 on Amazon. I don't recall what the link was, but I got it a while back. Another cool idea, and I saw that um, uh, that Jeff Cohen was using it, is to have a monitor in the back and just have multiple on-air signs designed for it. And it just cycles through those. So that makes sense. Uh, one uh, one quick uh, uh, caveat, if you're going to use an on-air light with a neon transformer in it, uh, be careful if you're using Stream Deck to switch it because if it's a solid-state switch to the uh, power for it, um, it's not going to be uh, not going to be happy because of the inductive load that a uh, neon transformer requires. It needs to be a hard relay switch. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I just went down this rabbit hole uh, last week. 3D printing is probably going to be the best way if you really want to customize it. You have your uh, you have your LED strip lights, and now it's got basically LED rope which is kind of a diffused rope and, and different types of LEDs. Uh, you can get LEDs that are very close together and, and, and apart. So if you get them closer together, you can do a whole bunch more uh, fun little things with that, like change colors and, and make it do the, the fade in, fade out, go from blue to red without it looking too uh, choppy. Uh, but uh, with the ropes and with uh, they, they have uh, this company and i'll have to look it up in a second here this guy he makes these little pcb boards that you put together and uh, then of course you 3d print whatever you want for your sign you put the rope in you wire it up and you're good to go so if you want to do the do-it-yourself route i'll try and get that link for that video in uh, mukana all right looks like you have plenty of options let's go to our next question Peter Rosado, Las Vegas, Nevada, asked, can the panel discuss the process used for the effects shown here? And there's a YouTube link uh, to a uh, car spot where three cars are traveling at speed. Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, I would do this spot uh, with After Effects. I mean, there's a lot of programs that could do a, a very good job, but After Effects is fine for it because... The primary effect of the cars speeding along uh, on a racetrack or a, a back road, uh, there's three of them, uh, is using time remap to get them to go super fast and then slow down to a stop. And then the driver gets out of the car, steps into the scene, and does a little walking around the camera. Uh, it, it's possible you could do that as a practical effect uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the talent, but it could also be done with Mocha uh, Pro, and you could composite that in there uh, carefully. Uh, the effect of the uh, the 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 sound barrier mm -hmm. effect of the cars coming to a stop would be uh, done with uh, a distortion plug-in and uh, perhaps a practical effect that they brought 
brought in from like video copilot uh, to make that effect happen. But all pretty practical things. And some things that are neat about special effects are sometimes the simple ones can look the coolest and aren't super complicated to create in post. Sometimes those effects are nice to tear apart in a concentrated effort in a second hour. We'll have to do some of those. Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael is back. Has anyone used Ethernet extension cables like these? And he has a reference to them. This would be for a temporary connection in my studio until proper cabling can be installed. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, the cabling he's talking about is a little one meter uh, a plug adapter that goes from the laptop or, or the router to the uh, actual cable just to give it a little bit more extension. I as a very temporary solution yeah it could work i've had i've had regular ethernet cables and i'm using cat 7 cables now i've had in fact i just had one last week i was having problems with my video left and right and it turned out to be the cable and that's a straight up cable now if you put it once you start putting adapters to those cables. Next thing you know, you might run into new problems. So as a temporary solution, I like it. If you're going to do more long-term and you need to run longer type of things, I would put uh, some sort of injector, powered injector in there, maybe a router or, a, or an unmanaged switch in there. Uh, not a router, but an unmanaged switch in there. That way you'll have a little bit of power in between. But uh, for the temporary just test it out and make sure that you're getting your full uh, your full speed. All right, let's go to our next question. Next question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. When Jeffrey Power showed 360 webcam mode, there was a cool-looking illuminated keyboard. Is there an illuminated keyboard like this that is also silent and keyless that will work well on Mac and PC? So that it's pretty, but it doesn't whistle while it works. Um, good, Mark. Real quick. I don't have an answer, but I just kudos out to Paul for using the tools that we have in front of us to watch the show and ask a question about it in real time. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to track one down for you, Paul. Let's go to our next question. From Douglas Carmichael, if you were streaming live in 360 degrees, could a conventional streaming pipeline, an ATEM Mini to MIMO Live, etc., pass a 360-degree signal from the camera? Um, go ahead, Jeffrey. As far as I know, there is no ATEM Mini that will do that. There's probably some higher-end uh, items that uh, I don't really touch that uh, that are in there. For software, um, and once again, it's all, as you saw with that camera, I, you couldn't do that because uh, going into Wirecast, you got that split-level view. They're not going to change that, at least in this foreseeable future. So you'd have to have some very specialized software to bring it into a, a switcher hardware or software. Yeah, and one thing to keep in mind that these are super uh resolution right they're like five and six k and, and even higher um and then they're split out for that so atems are typically only 1080p let's go to our next question paul terry wallace from boston texas is in with this one everything everywhere all at once leads the critics choice awards with 14 nominations followed by the fablemans with 11 while babylon and the banshees of insurance tie with nine do you agree will you watch on january 15th no comment. I haven't seen it. But next question. 
Next question from Douglas Carmichael. The University of Illinois recently had a drone light show synchronized to music at Memorial Stadium. How would they program the drone movements and link them to specific points in the music? Jeffrey. A lot of practice and a lot of uh, a lot of work. It's it's not that difficult to do. It's just uh, putting all those points together. I've seen several different drone shows that are done to music. I was uh, I was at Disneyland, for example, when they did their drone show, which was kind of funny because they got in trouble for doing their own drone show for flying drones over their own park because they had them put the ordinance in that no drones could fly over. And then, of course, CES, uh, we did uh, the Bellagio show. Uh, they timed it to music. That You know, you have a click track. You have uh, you have people that, you know, are just basically going point to point to point. And then, of course, you have to adjust for wind. You have to adjust for other elements as you go. But it can be done. And our last question. From Douglas Carmichael, if two separate computers were handling the audio and the lighting drone programming, how would you distribute the control signal? I haven't worked with Simpty LTC, but I've heard it can be finicky when distributed to multiple devices. And I'm not sure that we have a specialist for this, but uh, Mitchell, maybe you can speculate. I'm going to speculate. Um, if you were sending a longitudinal time code to both devices, uh, there may be some uh, latency issues in terms of how they receive it, how they uh, buffer and process that information. So that would be an issue, you know, latency. Dave? Well, the only uh, longitudinal time code I've had to use is in television and uh, recording studio, uh, syncing uh, a 24-track and a 36-track tape deck together so that they would um, stay in sync and record and have that same sync and playback. So uh, if you are careful and the lines are clean and there's not a lot of noise on those lines, uh, yeah, distributing it is not too hard. Um, it used to be quite easy to do as an audio signal. It's just a great big noisy audio tone that counts. So um, in the sense that multiple devices can probably receive a single source time code, that's actually how a television station stays in sync. All the cameras and all the devices in a, a big plant like that are all tied into the same pulses and time code and sync lock and everything else. So these problems have been solved before. Well, thank you, uh, our panel, for filling these questions. Thank you, our producers, for putting our questions in and driving the show and uh, deciding where we go with our answers. We appreciate that. Our, we're not done with our show. Please stick around as we go into our uh, secondary part of it. Uh, we also want to stay tuned for our credits that will play at the end of our show. We really appreciate all of the people in the back end that uh, do this each and every day and keep this show looking the way it does and having uh, doing all the little things behind the scenes that people don't always don't always see but we we do always appreciate so with that we'll go to our education hour and dave uh, trotman will take us to that uh, dave what do you have today well today we're going to take a look at what educators expect from software aimed at making their teaching more effective we'll look at what factors they consider and whether today's software is living up to those expectations much better today than it did in the past hi and welcome to Education Hour. Today it's all about software and support of educators in all areas of teaching and learning. From kindergarten all the way to ed adult education and a growing list of software is available for teaching and learning. 
Some is aimed at managing a course and others is aimed at being a student, uh, activities leading them into learning. And um, I'll begin today by asking those who've joined us today to share their experiences with educational software by putting your remarks in Mucana, uh, our question system. And you can find access to that on the uh, Office Hours Global website. And if you sign into there, you'll see questions from yourself and other people, and you'll be able to respond to our conversation. Um, I think the um, discussion probably could start with our panel right now, and I'll ask just the few of us that are here, uh, if you've had experience with educational software which helped form your later approach to assessing it, if it will be worth using in your lessons. So if hands are up here, uh, we'll have a talk. Uh, we'll start with Tony. I don't see Tony here. Hmm. Okay. Well, we'll move on to Harshid. Oh, you're, there you go. There we go. All right. So the way I want to approach this is also uh, when I first started uh, at a, a, a organization, uh, they used Moodle as a, uh, a tool to kind of quiz you and make you aware of what a call center might uh, go through. So if you get a phone call and let's say you're a cell phone company and well, I have the such and such needs. Well, how do you move through a spreadsheet uh, or how do you move through uh, the type of customer that you're dealing with and using that sort of tool you know later on progressing into a more uh, interactive call center uh, position um, the characteristics that I found as Moodle was used in classrooms alike and in training uh, aspects as, as such the tool for me personally, when I used it with the vision that I had, it worked out pretty well. But what I find in modern day is we must decide on a tool that is going to be more inclusive and more accessible to screen readers, perhaps. So I do find that some tools uh, at this point, like uh, Google Classroom, has improved in many different ways to navigate within a screen reader or set up a, a assessment or such. Um, for example, when we first started this session for education this time around, uh, we had a guest in with me and at, with her, I got to experience Google Classroom where she set up a, a quiz for me and then I went ahead, took it, and then we saw the back end of what feedback you got. So, you know, analytics and statistics uh, to a, a tool that is more complete is always important. I feel no matter if it's the Google Classroom environment or if it's something like alternatively, like I mentioned in the beginning, Moodle, um, it would, I'm more curious to know what are more tools that you might have come across out there with the panel and um, I'll pass it on and our producers as well. We'd like to hear from them as to what sort of software they've had experience with. Um, uh, yeah, I've come across Moodle myself and uh, people I see working with it have a sort of love-hate relationship with it. Um, and, and it's adequate and, and does what it's meant to do. Um, and I hope it's been a, you know altered and improved over time. I haven't used it in a long time. Uh, we can go to John Idelson now. 
We're not hearing you, John. This thing called mute. That's better, a good, good yes. software. Sorry about that. You think I'd learn how to do this after a while? Uh, I am new on the panel for a while, but anyway, I, I'm going to be the ringer in here because my whole professional life has been doing educational technology. Um, during graduate school, I worked on a project called Plato, which was the first time shared computer program for education. Uh, and then a number of years later, started a software firm with the colleague I went to graduate school with and have been working in this space for a very long time. Uh, what I'll say is all software is educational. And you have to learn how to use it and hopefully it facilitates uh, student and teacher interaction and learning. I, I looked at the software in sort of categories. What is software that's directly used by the student to help their education? Word processing uh, comes to mind, spreadsheets, uh, CAD type programs. I look at software that's used by the faculty and things like Moodle and uh, Canvas, you know, to facilitate um, student interaction, uh, exchanging documents, uh, Excel or grade, grade sheet programs. Uh, it's a sort of another category. And then there's, you know, what I think people think about of, you know, a educational software. And I think the classic of that is Oregon Trail, which was a early uh, educational software on the Apple II uh, computer, where it was a very specific thing that you you grabbed and uh, gave to the students, usually as an award. You know, those were the days that getting on the computer was, you know, considered fun. Yes, yes. So, you know, for me, I think um, it's interesting to see how things have changed. My first educational technology project that I did was a slow scan video conference from a medical school to a ship at sea using slow scan television, sort of a precursor to what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. And that was modeled after the, you know, the World War II educational training materials like simulators, uh, where yeah, it's students sitting on what looked like a barrel, but they were pretending like they were flying. Um, and you and I might remember the old days when you had slide shows with a beep, with a record playing. So I, I, I think educational software is a broad range of, of tools and resources. And earlier on the show today, they were talking about AI, which is educational software in many ways. And can be, yes. Used in the right way, it can be very useful, just as, like you say, with the slideshows and the beeps, it wasn't just a way to put all the students to sleep. It was actually, you know, one of the better ways to convey visual ideas. Yeah. Um, and, and you look at John? Adobe Acrobat, oh, okay. which is a it's mm -hmm. getting the professor mode, Adobe Acrobat, which lets you exchange documents and annotate it, and things like electronic portfolios, which really isn't a piece of educational software, but the electronic portfolio movement where students collect and share their documents to document their learning is really using a, a mix of educational software or quote software to meet an educational goal. And now mm -hmm. if, if oh, the no. professor goes too long, just get the hook. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we'll pull you off screen. Um, John Snyder. When I think educational software, it's a combination of what has been said before, 
the most common software, especially in the corporate world that you're talking about, is like Harshid was describing Moodle. That's what's called a learning management system, which tracks learner completion and assessment, as well as um, what education materials are available. It's a large database. There's also course authoring software, which is what people use to create e-learning modules. E-learning modules are those things you have to take at work that look like a slide deck. Sometimes they're made in PowerPoint. Sometimes they're using a different technology. Uh, the advanced e-learning soft software, uh, the most common ones are Adobe Captivate and Articulate 360. Uh, there's also a lot of rapid authoring tools. And I think some of the people <clears throat> who are part of Office Hours have various versions of um, LMS and course authoring software that um, some people even sell here. And so that's when you're a corporation, those are generally what you're evaluating. There's also prepared uh, courses where you you pay money to have someone else do the work for you. And that's something else that you might evaluate in an educational context. There's simulation software to put you in a realistic scenario to practice the skill. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes that's part of a course authoring software, sometimes not. There's support software, like how to build slide decks, like PowerPoint Keynote. There's assessment authoring software, how to make tests and quizzes. There's grade tracking software, classroom management software. There's a lot of different areas we can go. And I think it's up to our producers to see, ask us, where do we want to go? Let's do that now. We can turn to our producers and take some questions here and see what experiences they have and the things they think are important. Our first question is from James Fulsey, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Can you talk about the relationship between how IT supports educators? What works best? Ooh, best is, uh, for me, it's what you like. Um, if the IT professional is someone you like or their decisions are decisions you agree with, then it's easy to work with them. Uh, it's rather difficult when you're at odds with them. Um, it's not telling stories out of school, but I was asked to be a liaison between the education faculty and the many uh, system administrators that the computing department and other departments had. And they would meet once a week on a Tuesday at a room in a special building. And I was sent from my group to go meet with these people and just be able to have a voice in the room. And one day I arrived and everyone was standing outside the room. It was open, ready but everybody was standing outside the room and wouldn't go in. And I thought that was rather odd. So I asked one of the other guys, I said, why are we all out here? And he goes, the donuts haven't arrived yet, so they're not going in. I learned a lot about administrators through that short period of time I represented my faculty in that you have to not arrive with a problem. You have to arrive with a possible understanding of the limitations of what you're going to ask for and then accept their understanding that is bigger than yours about the implications or complications that arise when you ask for, say, certain software to run, or you want to put a, a visitor counter on your web page, or silly things like that, and how much work it is for someone at the other end. So I found that if I ever needed help from an administrator or I wanted to influence the decision some way, I'd take them to lunch, and I'd listen to their painful problems all through that lunch hour. And then they would feel like, you know, Dave's a guy who understands me. And, and now if he asks for something or wants something changed or make a decision about something, um, maybe he'll be more inclined to listen to what I have to say because I've heard what he has to say. Uh, I have John Idelson uh, who's going to take this up as well. Yeah, I, I was a faculty member who was a pain to the IT department. 
And the, the transition happened is that IT departments in education tended to be the administrative computer system, you know, payroll, student records, grading, purchasing. And when the personal computer arrived and started showing up on people's desks, they didn't know exactly how to do what to do with it. They were sort of the heavy metal, the big servers and stuff. Um, that's changed. There's an organization called Educause, which is the group that has people who are CIOs or chief information officers at campuses. And they've sort of documented that change from, you know, the uh, IT department, you know, supporting the telephones and the, uh, uh, you know, payroll system to actually sort supporting student teaching and learning. Uh, for me, um, my awakening was that for most of my time when I was at CSU Monterey Bay, I was uh, one of the founding faculty and we were putting everything together. And the IT director was uh, very much a, a control person, wanted to lock everything down. And I was very much the troublemaker trying to put beta software on. I was the faculty member who put a server under his desk and brought down the network. And so we were at, at constant battle. Um, Lev Gonick, who's now CTO at Arizona, the University of Arizona, which is a leading campus, he uh, he invited me to, you know, do a fellowship with him in the IT department. He said, and then I realized that was one of those things where keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Uh, but getting integrated with the IT organization, I saw the challenges that they had and the battles that they had. And I went from being uh, a real pain to the department to a real advocate for them. But it, it is a big challenge, particularly, you know, if we look at Zoom apps, um, many schools don't let the apps be loaded because they're controlling what you can and can't do with your, your uh, program. And mm -hmm. uh, virtual backgrounds or forcing backgrounds. So getting, and they don't, getting, don't want Zoom bombs happening, happening all of a sudden. Oh yeah, yes. that. So I, I, I think um, really, IT departments are getting better at learning about about you know what it takes to really help support faculty to do their jobs. But this is going to be an ongoing discussion, as we're not going to solve it today but we sure need to make sure people are aware that you need that you need good collaboration between your IT department mm -hmm. and your teaching mm -hmm. faculty yes you do yeah uh i did a short stint as a, an instructor at a technical institute only one year special uh, joining them for just that year and one of the first things i did is make sure the three guys running the IT section for that whole department uh, knew who i was knew what i understood and uh, knew that I, I actually understood what they do and wanted to help them. And boy, did I get help when I needed it. Uh, John Snyder? Yeah, it's a critical relationship that most of us neglect because uh, we don't like each other or we feel like we're, it has to be adversarial and it doesn't have to be. What works best is sitting down with the other department and trying to see how you can help each other. And I think one thing that I've really tried to do in my roles is understand why IT has the decisions they have, because sometimes it feels like they unnecessarily lock things down, but they're looking at it, we are protecting the whole organization. And when I understand that, I can ask, how do I make your job easier, IT department, so that you want to make my job easier? And it can become a, ben a mutually beneficial relationship if you're intentional about getting to know the people as well as what they want from their department and their goals. 
that even works with the caretaker too. Like it's not just IT people who are supporting you. There's a whole team of people behind the scenes in any institution that are keeping things going and knowing what they do and how they do it and how you can help them is always useful. Let's move to the next question. The next question is from John Fultz, Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania. It's a comment. Last week's session was great. I've been digging into edgy protocols all week. Thanks. Well, we appreciate the thank you because uh, we uh, hope that it makes people think further about some of these ideas. Uh, John? Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And also, uh, John Carippo reached out to me and he said, for the first five people who would like to reach out, he'd be happy to give a copy of his book. Is there a link or uh, I'd say that's uh, connect with me in Discord and I'll, I'll make that connection. All right, that'd be great. And John Idelson. Well, I've known John for many, many years, and uh, it's hard for him to put into a, a one-hour discussion on office hours of, you know, what he's doing with edge uh, protocols, but also, you know, sort of John's philosophy. He's really one of those educators who walks the walk and talks the walk and almost screams the walk. And, you know, he went back to the classroom. Um I gave John a hard time when I first saw the EDU protocols because I said, John, you know, what you're doing here, we've known as educational psychologists and researchers, these these things work. He says, yeah, but how many people use them? I put it into a form where people understand it. And, uh, you know, I, he usually doesn't in his in his workshop, he doesn't put in his short presentations. He really doesn't go back and show, well, why does this protocol work because this is what we know about learning theory or how students engage with uh, content mm-hmm. but but he's done these, these packages in a way that he's been able to get the word out and again I, i'm really excited that you know here's a guy who's been a principal ran a, a education organization been a classroom teacher and he really went back to the classroom and then sort of as a, a side gig is really trying to present this not only here in the States, but he's gotten a big uptake worldwide. And I think a lot of it has been because of uh, a lot of educators didn't think students could really use the tools in a way that would help them. They, they thought the computer, many, the computer was just, a, you know, an aside. And the protocols really puts the educational process with the software and the activities front and center. So I'm glad that uh, people enjoyed John. He's a great guy and his co-author and John are online all the time. They they do this for the love, not not for the money, but they have to figure out how to pay for their travel and and print the books, many of them, which they give away. Okay. Next question. Mike Beardmore in Reading, UK. Some have expressed concerns about ChatGPT and exam submissions. How can such services speed learning in a positive way? Oh, that's an interesting thing because um, we're not entirely sure yet, and and I have some of my own suspicions, um, what this is built to service. Usually when you come up with a new technology, you're trying to solve a problem, or you're trying to make life easier for people, or you're trying to simplify something that seems complicated. And with ChatGPT, it seems to be an ongoing experiment rather than a product that's got a market at this time. If people who are in training and learning uh, see its value, uh, I certainly 
I'm not seeing the value yet. Uh, maybe when I stop being able to speak because of a stroke, maybe this will help me. Uh, but uh, the learning aspect of it is still obscure to me. So unless there are other ideas uh, that come up, which as this code gets put into other products and helps those products become more effective, simple to use, or otherwise useful, uh, then we won't even notice that it's chat GPT we're interacting with. John? I think it's really important for instructors, instructors to understand what they're trying to get out of the assignments and make sure that they're enabling students to do that, whether or not that includes using ChatGPT. ChatGPT is no different than just quickly searching Wikipedia and just copying pasting from Wikipedia, which a lot of students do, or using a paper writing service, which a lot of students do. The question is, what are you doing to make sure your students have activities to learn what you want them to learn? And I think chat GBT can be leveraged for that by helping that the maybe helping the students collect the information and then having them use their brains to assess it and ask them in a, for example, in classroom uh, to respond in discussion. You can't chat GPT your way through a live discussion. It's more mm -hmm. work for the educator, but maybe we've become too lazy with our assessments. That's an interesting point. Yes, that active discussion is never going to go away. It's the Socratic method of learning where everybody discusses it. John Idelson? Well, in our Discord channel under the Education General, I uh, put a link to a post by uh, Michael Fieldstein, who's a, a well-known sort of futurist in education. Yeah, thanks for doing that. Yeah, and his the title of it is uh, I would I would have cheated in college using Chat uh, GPT, uh, which is a good catchy headline, and you need to read the whole thing to see what he was really saying, but. Um, I, I have two thoughts about it. It, it. One, I've started using it, and it was fun. I My research has been in the f field of electronic portfolios, so I asked it some questions about what is electronic portfolio, defining it, and who are the leaders. And it did a pretty good first draft. Um, and so I thought if I ever had writer's block, I would probably use it to help me you know, get my uh, uh, writing started. Yeah, but yeah. the the thing that I see is that this is not really new. These tools have been around. What's new, it's becoming aware in the public eye. So if you if you look at GPS, GPS existed for a very long time before it showed up on our phones and on our um, you know uh, card dashboards. So yeah. I think the interesting thing that we're having now is this tool that has been used in marketing, has been used in things like Salesforce, it's been used at call centers, now is going to be something that goes down to the general public. And this could be a, a changer, I think, in terms of, um, you know, as you look at tools, if you look at the word processor, help replace uh, uh, typewriters, typewriters and stuff. and. And to me, the, the word processor was cut and paste. You know, you didn't have to worry about, oh, no, if I get to the last line of that paper on the typewriter and I make a mistake, I need to retype the whole page. Retype that page, yeah. yeah. And or I think, uh, paper. yeah, and, and I don't think people, when they thought word, first about word processors, thought about cut and paste. They just thought about, you know, let's use the computer to control a typewriter. And the next thing we know, all these 
functions and features are added, turning them into desktop publishers. So I think it's the people, same thing here with the chat uh, GPT. Um, it people, will be interesting. People learn new skills when they had to use word processors. They had to acquire new little uh, tricks and, and procedures that the word processor requires to be more efficient with than a typewriter does. So, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of... Uh, thinking there there's a part of this question that says how can such services speed learning and i wonder if speed is a consideration here does an ai have an advantage of being able to respond quicker or more completely or with um, more more accurate information than an instructor or an interaction with uh, other teaching materials uh, any speed is a, speed is an interesting thing you know of course they say don't do speed no that's the drug um, when, when you give a student an exam and wait a week before you grade it and the student got a number of questions wrong, they've had a week thinking the question that they answered was right. So we know that to improve the effectiveness of test being a teaching tool, you want to get the re feedback mm -hmm. to the student as quickly as possible. And a lot of the educational software allowed you to do that. You could ask the question and then you say, hey, I was close, but why don't you go back and read this? So I, I think in that same light, um, something like chat GPT, if there were some way of making sure it was giving valid information, would be able to give that, you know, if, if a student has a question, you know, you say, write it down, bring it up in class, uh, they might forget it. Then they said, I had this problem last night, but I don't remember what it is. You know, something like chat GPT, if, if it did work where a student could very quickly get help, sort of an online tutor, that would be great. But mm -hmm. uh, as we've known from a lot of the discussions we've had, it's not always the best answer that comes out of it. You know, when I asked it who was a leader in instructional technology and ePortfolio, my name didn't come up. <laughs> But a number of my good friends did, and I sent them to them, and they pointed that out to me because we always oh, are discussing okay. about things anyway. That's cool. John? Well, maybe it's because it's dealing with Ada. That's a year old, John Edelson. Um, when we think about speeding learning, we have a good understanding of how human beings learn and the science of cognition. And we know what practices make you learn faster or more effectively and move information from short-term memory into long-term memory. ChatGPT doesn't necessarily facilitate any of that, um, though other AI tools potentially could. But that's really the subject of a different education hour. Sure. Yeah, maybe we will delve deeper into the speed of learning. Um, let's take the next question. The next question is from Chris Clark from Tempe, Arizona. As a teacher, I appreciate the It Just Works quality of Apple products. Is plug and play a vital part of successful, usable education software? Go ahead, John Edelson. Well, I'm going to have to do my disclaimer because I am an Apple fan. And since 2000, I've been their term, an Apple distinguished educator. Uh, and while I was teaching at the university, I helped facilitate a statewide teacher credentialing program called Cal State Teach. And we were one of the first uh, teacher education programs to do a one-on-one -on -one iPad implementation. Uh, excuse me. Every one of our student teachers got an iPad and they were actually using them in the classroom with their students. Uh, I think Apple 
has always been a leader in terms of education. We, we mentioned Oregon Trail that was first produced on an Apple IIe. Um, I think the question sort of talks about it in being the, it just works and educational software. It's really an educational ecosystem that they have there that runs software in an app store. Um, and I, I think Apple's been a, a real leader in this. I do worry that, um, you know, sometimes the education market doesn't get all the attention for R and D that I'd like them to see. And, uh, you know, as Apple goes to having but many more products back in 2000, uh, Apple was a computer company. <laughs> now it's so much more than that. But I, I have to say as a, uh, uh, teacher who used the Apple ecosystem in a uh, statewide teacher credentialing program, that integration and it just works really made all the difference. Okay. Arshid? Yeah, so I wanted to kind of take a step back the other way with this one. Um, I understand the factor of the it works aspect of things, but are we also focusing on aspects of how uh, kids are really learning the workings of a product, right? Because if you have, let's say, earpods or AirPods, and that's all you're listening to, and that's all you claim to listen to, you're not going to know that what a Sennheiser might sound like or what another company might sound like. So mm -hmm. in that same breath of air with Apple's kind of predication of it works, I understand that, yes, it is a a good momentum when there's a lot of great tools that have been built on it. But if you also look at it, Google does the same with uh, facts to Chrome, Chromebooks. Uh, you have the uh, Windows um, ARM systems, but they didn't really go towards the ARM system architecture per se. They're still on the Intel base. And I think what shifts momentum is what is used by most and not by some. So, you know, it's that push and pull, just like tug of war, and it might be a losing battle at times, but you have to kind of give it both sides of the coin uh, overview of what are you really buying into? If it's an ecosystem, as we have stated pretty much in this question, then agreeable that keep it within an ecosystem. But if it's about learning and just learning about the new, what is cutting edge, then we need to leave it open to new tools, other companies to come in and kind of have a little bit of a competition going on here. I, you know, you've made me think about um, some of the early days uh, where Apple was seeding classrooms or, or putting in labs at colleges and that sort of thing to give people facility with it and let them give it a try. And I thought to myself, the, the thing about Apple is they have this guidelines for developers where they have a standardizing of the process. Icons are all the same size. They have certain aspects. The functions of buttons are always predictable. And once you've learned one, you know how to work all of them. The menu structures and their cascades have a kind of limit to them. You should be able to get to something rather quickly and not have to mouse around too much. You don't have to enter codes in order to be able to access functions. All of these things were in other platforms. And I, you know, I've got a Unix and a Linux background as well. And these things were all part of, you were more learning how to use a computer than when you were losing, learning from a computer. Um, 
and I have a great VAC story to tell if we ever have time for it. But uh, my feeling was that this just works thing was its advantage, that it worked the same way for every kid and it worked um, more easily with more software because all the software seemed to work the same way. So I think that's an aspect of it. But I'm with you on competition in that the Chromebook has actually had a huge influence on giving kids access to laptops that access the school system and allows a protected and secure system to operate in a a large scale um, uh, citywide school program. But that wasn't always possible with iPads or with uh, some of the other installations of the Mac 128s and that sort of thing. I'm going to go to John Snyder and then John Idelson is back. Yeah, user onboarding is super important with any product, especially when it's something like this, where teachers should be teaching, not learning how to use their technology. And if you have too complicated a technology, they won't use the features that can bring the benefit. So it needs to be something that's intuitive and easy to use and easy to learn, as well as well-documented for when you have questions. Go ahead, John. Well, I follow up with what John just said. Yeah, easy to use. Obviously, we know that has an impact because Zoom took off because it was so easy to use. But I think one of the things that Apple did in the early days when they had what was called the Apple Seed program, where they gave a Apple computer to every school in California to try to get the whole idea of technology in the classroom. And there was a whole discussion of computer literacy. And back in those days, the literacy is you learn basic, you know, print 10, print hello or whatever, your three-line basic program. Go-to and all the rest. But the uh, back when they did the Apple Seed program, they gave a a computer software called uh, Computer Discovery, which was how they looked at computer literacy. And basic wasn't what they taught. They taught programming concepts. It was a little robot that would walk across a field and kick a soccer ball. And you had to learn about the various steps, repeating uh, order of processing. So mm-hmm. their concept was not basic, but computer and mathematical concepts. But they also talked about social implications. You know what I mean? Implications. Thank you. It's too early on Saturday. They also talked about the history of computers, how it happened, you know, who were the leaders. And then it also talked about social aspects of it, you know, what's good about it, what are the dangers and risks. So I thought that was very far sighted for Apple to when they were giving out the machines to also give out a tool that was more than just learn a programming language, but learn the history of computing, learn the concepts of computing, learn the technology and the social impact. And I think that's sort of followed through all that they do with the mm-hmm. uh, even their Apple store, their app store, their Apple distinguished educators are really trying to make it just work. And it's more than just building a box and putting a program on it. That's probably part of the fun of Swift, the programming language, having a playground. Uh, the Swift playground is introducing people to object-oriented programming and and making it a probably, uh, it's it's got its limitations apparently, but I don't use it, so I can't comment on that. But they keep trying to make things just work. Uh, let's go to the next question. 
Our next question comes from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Tony asks, can the panelists talk about good telestrating apps for educators? Well, I'm not an expert in that area, so I'm going to defer to John Snyder. Yes, we will be having a telestration uh, education hour in the very near future. I was hoping to do it next week. Unfortunately, for personal reasons, I cannot. Uh, but stay tuned. I would say start looking at things like Video Pencil if you have an iPad. Uh, if you have just a Mac, you might look at Presentify on the Mac App Store. And a quick answer from John Idelson. Well, a sleeper program in the app ecosystem is called Doceri, and it's been around for quite a while. And what Doceri lets you do is use your iPad as a presentation tool. But what's clever about it is that if you are a math teacher and you have math uh, three sessions in a row, it lets you have your PowerPoint, or in this case, keynote presentation, and you could annotate on it. So you might have a worksheet and you annotate it, show the problem. And then at the end of the class, you um, reset it. And for your next class, you still have all your notes without the annotations on it. So it, it was an early telestrator. It's been around for a number of years. It's very inexpensive. So if, if you're thinking about uh, telestration and creating recordings of it, because it then records it, you can also play it back. Great. Okay, next question. And John is silent. But here he comes. Was I muted? I apologize. <laughs> James okay. Fossling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. When the institution doesn't support the software you need, how do you express your needs? That's like uh, pretty much a generic question. If an institution doesn't support uh, uh, disability, if it doesn't support people with special needs, uh, it, uh, you have to make the case. Uh, I think sometimes people expect the case to be uh, you know, automatically understood, but in, in a lot of situations, um, the resistance isn't that they can't understand it. It's just that the, it may not meet the priorities of the institution or the place that is is going to have to pay for it or or support it or sustain it. Um, sometimes uh, and and with you know call centers, uh, it has to make the process smooth, seamless, and and won't crack or break down. Uh, but if you're going to get everybody to change the software, uh, there's a room full of people who are going to have to make an ad adaptation, which may not be pleasant for them, and that's a consideration in in taking in those needs. Uh, Harshid's got something on this. Yes, I do. And if you want to perhaps take um, an outside source, so for me specifically, I might lean into an outside source because I could at least get my plan met for what I need in sense of software or a platform like a Mac computer or a Windows computer, Mac Chromebook, etc. And what this will do for me is not only enable me to get to that point of you know, overcoming that obstacle, or if the organization is not willing, I will already have the tool ready to go. And then if I get an obstacle put in front of me, I have a tool because law is law to say, well, I've brought to the table what I've done, and I've, this is as much as I could do. You're presenting me an obstacle here, and your IT department is not willing to work with me. And, you know, then you could take it up, and it could be a lawsuit if it needs to be. But there is a point of how much you bring to the table as well as much as 
somebody brings to you. So it's kind of a, you, you want to take it both on a push and pull. Yeah. And this is part of that uh, previous conversation about um, respecting other people's uh, jobs and needs and, and having a relationship with them rather than an adversarial relationship. John, uh, go ahead. This is a little subversive, but uh, at a previous institution, there was a student media lab that was shared in back in those days, you know, computers were expensive. So they, and hardware was expensive. So they, it was all put in a lab to serve a number of schools. So the, I, you know, I taught instructional technology. We used a lab, the education department used a lab, parks and recreation used a lab, computer science used a lab. And whenever we went to the management of the lab, we'd say, could you really buy this piece of software or this hardware? They said, well, we can't because that other group doesn't want it. And this other group doesn't want it. One day we were all in the cafeteria eating and we were complaining to each other about why don't you want the stuff that I want? And we realized we had all been going there and been told that the other group didn't want it. So we got together and we established the uh, Student Media Lab Advisory Committee. We posted the agendas. We met biweekly. We sent the reports to the Academic Senate and to our department chairs. We did this for about three months and then made up a list of some suggested changes we wanted. And then it got sent to the director and then it got circulated to all the deans. And eventually the provost sent me a note because I was the chair of this committee and said, uh, I, I don't have the letter where we appointed you to the committee. Could you, do you have that in your file? And <laughs> so we created a bogus organization that, that to this day still exists supporting him. So I think, uh, well, there you go. It you is know, institutions, yes. you, you need it, it, power with the people. <laughs> right. Next question. Our next question is from Bobby Rafferty in central Florida. Can you explain what LMS learning management systems are? I'm going to let John Snyder take this one. Yeah, it's a large database, and you can think of it as tracking two primary things. One is educational materials, like classes, um, outlines, tests, that sort of thing. And the other is tracking students, and it tracks which students take which materials when. I think that's the basis of most learning management systems, though they can be much, much more complicated. Yes, they manage the process. So teaching has all its corollary expectations. Uh, even just scheduling classes or getting materials uh, circulated, uh, learning management systems can do that. Some of them, when they have to handle large training environments, are extremely expensive. But those would be customized and tailored to that particular situation and the needs of that organization. Uh, and it's a similar thing to content management and web pages and all the rest. It's just an automation on the back end that serves the people who are doing the instructing. John Edelson, anything to add? Yeah, you're going to get a little academic here of uh, history, but we want to thank the be, Canadians. Be quick about it, please. <laughs> I will. WebCT was created uh, in Canada, and the original sort of course management systems were really helping distribute calendars, assignments, dropping papers off, and exchanging them. Um, there is a Zoom app now called VCN, which is a uh, learning, well, it's a, a lot of things. It's incorporated all the things I think need to be in learning management system. It, it does have all the calendars and drop boxes, but it's a, you know, a course, it's a portfolio tool, and it's a social media tool for students who are doing learning 
not like LinkedIn, which would be your professional tool, but like a study group. So if, if you want to see a robust, uh, system, look at the web, uh, the CN as a Zoom app, because it's incorporated everything that really helps students and teachers engage. The original course management systems really helped faculty members. It was a course management system. Then they said, well, wait, we're, this is really for the students. So now it's a learning management student system. Right. I, I have no love for learning management systems. Uh, but anyway, VCN is what I would consider the best learning tool uh, in that sort of genre of how do you facilitate communications between students and faculty and maintain records. Sure. Okay, next question. Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. With the rise of ChatGPT and other realistic AI tools, should educators take the attitude of banning the use of it or rethink how they assess students, relying more on original thought and less on pure facts? This is going to be an interesting short-term period problem, maybe for about two or three months, where everyone grapples with whether this is a a threat or an opportunity. And I think if people come to it as an opportunity, then they'll quickly have the attitude that banning it won't work. Banning it is just going to push it off the table and try and ignore it when, in fact, it's going to have an influence. I'm on that side. I, I think there's a way that, that uh, chat GPT and how it gets coded into other products is going to have an invisible effect. And we, we just have to adapt with it, just like we do the changes in weather. John? I was just going to recommend that we do this as a whole second hour in a future moment. Yeah, maybe in the next week or so, we would just take a chance to see how chat GPT affects education in all aspects. Next question. Next question is from Tony Mobley, Noonan, Georgia. What is the best hardware and software that should be distributed to all students K-12, through if that's even possible? I'm not sure that's even possible. I know some districts have tried to standardize all those grade groups, but really it, it, it comes down to what learning environments they're trying to offer at each level. And I think the, the hardware and the software has to fit the purpose. And so the needs of a, a grade eight student are very different than an eight-year-old. Uh, the opportunity to expand their experience or put them into simulated situations will be very different. And their reaction to these things, these tools, or even these software programs are going to have to be tuned to that stage of life. So I don't think there's a best hardware yet uh, in that regard. Next question. Next question comes from Paul Terry Walhus in Austin, Texas. Discuss DTAs, Digital Teaching Assistance, and discuss Edmentum, just released from the creators of Plato and Study Island. I don't have any expertise with uh, digital teaching assistants, um, and I'm not familiar with um, Edmentium. No, Edmentum. So, uh, unless there's others on the panel who have had a chance to interact with it, uh, I guess we'll ask you to bring that question back again, and maybe we'll have somebody who can take that up. Next question. Brody Hefner in New York City asks, does the Office of Technology at the U.S. Department of Education offer resources that teachers or curriculum developers go to, or should go to, when exploring, developing, or acquiring educational software? 
I can't say that I've looked at any of that stuff because I'm not actually in the U.S., so I've not investigated it. But I know there are supports at the university level for uh, course development and um, software engineering, which allow contractors or people who want to develop software to work within certain guidelines and, and then increase the likelihood that their products would be used in the classroom or adopted. Harshid? I would recommend to look up 508C compliances. Uh, that would give you some general aspects of uh, different development uh, things that you could do. And then dss.gov would be another resource, which is the digital, uh, digital services, I believe. Terrific. Okay. I hope that helps Brody Hefner. Next question. Next question is from Chris Clark again in Timbe. During the 1980s, the bad rap teachers had was that lots of machines and peripherals were gathering dust in school closets. Exciting hardware without empowering training led to wasted opportunity. How are things better now? What we're seeing now is a more mature environment, that the equipment or the mobile devices and the bandwidth and the uh, Wi-Fi that's available now uh, serves that process better and the machinery has fingerprints on it instead of dust. Um, I think things are better now because of those other supporting infrastructure factors. And then the choice of what device to have is actually narrowed down to a, a set that actually work well with the software instead of trying to sort of be the leaders in a field. John Edelson? Well, it, when the personal computer first came out, there were a lot of faculty and teachers didn't want them in their classroom. You know, so the world has changed. That It's an expected tool. But I think we still have some of the problems of uh, the potential of the technology hasn't been matched by the professional development for educators. The pandemic helped it really get technology in the hands of more students and teachers. And so is it better now? I think it's better now, but we, you know, it was mixed results. There were some people who did wonderful things with the remote learning and the use of the technology, and they continue to use those practices today. But we still have a lack between the professional development and the skill set, the wetware that is needed versus the software and hardware to make it be successful in the classroom. Well put. Next question. Next question from Paul Terry Walhus in Austin, Texas. Education software is a term used to refer to software designed for the use in educational industries. The term includes everything from student information systems and classroom management software, etc. What type are we focused on today? What categories? Well, uh, for me, we have a number of issues. We have the user issue and then the content issues, and then we have administration issues and management issues. So we wanted to sort of had a wide ranging discussion about all these things. Some software, as it's been described, traditionally was just to manage a classroom and a school and uh, was more focused on what the faculty needs were. Now there seems to be software that's more focused on what the students' needs are. And then there's so software being supporting special needs. And then there are tools like the iPad apparently is is very popular with people with autism. But no one's done enough studies to know why that's special and why that's different. I know uh, iPads are very popular with elderly people because they don't have to relearn the computer every time they pick it up. So 
in that sense, uh, we're looking at every category in training, corporate, or institutional use. And John Snyder. As a meta comment to this question, I think this might have been written by ChatGPT. Uh, we're going to have to put asterisks on some of these things then, eh? Um, next question, please. Next question is from Harshi Trivedi, Daytona Beach, Florida, here on the panel. I found Canvas as a present as of present to be a great system to learn from. How about Blackboard and other products, perhaps? What would this, would, what would this be known as? LMS? I'm not familiar with Canvas. I've heard of it. I haven't talked to anyone who has used it, so I'm going to let John Snyder talk. Yeah, I believe Canvas is a learning management system. I'd have to double check that. But I think the, the more important thing when we're thinking of educational materials, especially in the workplace, is it has as much to do with the design and writing of the, of the actual educational material as the technology used to deliver it. Because you can have great education with bad systems and bad education with great systems. Next question. Next question is from John Fultz, Sellins Grove, Pennsylvania. We use Blackboard and switch to Canvas. I think Canvas is user-friendly. Blackboard was tedious. Students like Canvas much more than Blackboard. Well, that's interesting. John, you got an opinion on that? Ah, you're muted. I, I've told you I really don't like any of them, but I, <laughs> I will say that um, they tend to be more of the same because a competition. So Canvas, Blackboard, Desire to Learn, Moodle, and the list could go on. Um, but there are different flavors of Blackboard. There are different implementations of Canvas and Moodle. And faculty members have a lot of choice in what parts of the program they use. So I've seen very effective uses of Blackboard. I've seen very effective uses of Canvas. Desire to Learn has a slightly different model of it. So you can't say, you know, Canvas was good and Blackboard was bad or vice versa. It was a bad implementation of the, of the system. Uh, one of the challenges that happened with course management systems is it allowed faculty to pick and choose how they used it and what they would call things and how they would do it. You could use a Dropbox to turn in an assignment or you could send it as an email within it. And campuses didn't really establish procedures or um, norms. And so you would have students on a campus who were using Blackboard and the faculty were using it in completely different ways. So it was if they had three different learning systems, the one for this teacher, the one for that teacher, the one for the other teacher. So when people are unhappy with their system, I don't think it's the tool, it's uh, what the people built with the tool. I was a project manager for the Defense Department in Canada to make a training system for pilots. And one of the requirements was that it be incredibly flexible for the instructor to decide what the lesson would be today, how quickly they would proceed through the lesson, and whether or not they could push things off the table and push them to another lesson day. And it wasn't that hard for us to program it. It was just hard for us to have the infrastructure where that would work for them, where they could push and pull on things. Um, I'm not sure what Blackboard does, and I'm not sure what Canvas does. Based on what John's been talking about, it does look like it was meant to be a, an LMS. John Snyder? 
I just wanted to point out that instructional design, the act of designing the instruction, which is typically a job done by someone who specializes in learning technology or in learning management systems or e-learning authoring tools, is a related, related but distinct set skill set than teaching. And so it's really hard for teachers to make good courses if they've never been taught the principles of instructional design. And I think that's one reason why some people have had bad experiences with these tools is someone who doesn't know how to use them is trying to do the best they can. Excellent point. Thank you, John. Next question. Next question is from Brian Schwartz in Baltimore, Maryland. John Preto said he often queries the Office Hours database for answers to questions he has. What are the actual steps for doing this? I'm not sure the OH database, as you describe it, is available outside of John Preto's desk. Um, the OH website has a database that drives it, and he's able to find key information in there, and, and it's actually quite a good resource for anybody, but it's a, it's a database of its own kind, and, and John is a, a database kind of guy. So I, I don't know if he's just accessing his own OH database or if there's one meant for the rest of us to use. Uh, I certainly haven't had access to it myself. So I'm just going to move to the next question here. Next question is from Paul Terry Walhus in Austin, Texas. What part of the new AI chatbot software play in education? How and when will it be phased into the educational process? A bit early to tell, but I'm going to let John Idelson remark. I'm just going to say, I, I, this will be an interesting thing to watch, but I've always said if any piece of software or hardware could replace a teacher, then it should. You know, there's okay. the human element that's your, whatever it plays, it's not going to replace the gray matter that we have up here and the connection that we have as a human to other humans, which is a key part of the educational process. But it will be fun to see what chatting happens. It's foundational for sure. John Snyder? I suspect we have no idea what the future will be when it comes to AI. We're just opening it up. It's just becoming something people are starting to experience. We haven't even started to think about how can we actually use this thing. We're just playing with it. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you goes out to all the people who submitted questions today and every day. You're the community that makes these discussions possible, and we had a great time today, I'm sure. As well, I'd like to acknowledge all the people who volunteer every single day to operate the integrated systems of office hours and after hours and our education hour and recognize their dedication for nearly a thousand days. In a few days time, there's going to be an a thousand days sort of celebration episode. We're going to look back on the evolution of office hours and all the historical moments that may have happened. And uh, we thank you, the producers, along with today's panelists. Thank you for your remarks and insights. And uh, we'll look for you next week at the same time. Bye for now. Thank you, everyone. That was interesting. Good show. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for letting me play the guy. I, I thought it'd be dangerous because this is my field, so I knew I was pulling out lecture B. Oh, I could talk about this. <laughs> well, I hope you had fun today. Yes. Oh, I, I, I always have fun doing it. As I said, I just um, yeah. they don't need 
too many Idelsons online. My yeah. my new daughter in law is going through the trauma of, of deciding mm-hmm. she she had planned to take our family name, mm-hmm. but her name is Sarah with an H. We're my, we're still recording there, John. So you might oh, want to okay. be careful what you describe. Yes. Thank you, Harshid, for being here and being a constant Absolutely. in our presence here. Of course, of course. It's yes. fun. And thank you, Mr. Edelson. It's really fun. Yeah. Great information. We don't have, a, we have a TBA, I guess, in the listing for next week because uh, 